Our gospel reading today from Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 17, 11 to 19. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now, he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, we're not ten cleansed. Where are the nine? Was no one found to give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks God. Let's pray. God Almighty, we pray with your servant Samuel that you'd speak, for we're listening. We pray with the psalmist that you'd open our eyes today to behold wonderful things out of your word. And now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts in this place be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our only redeemer. We pray it through the strong name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. We're looking today at uh, this uh, lesson from the gospel. And the Puritan preacher, William Cooper, he tells us that there are three universal duties for the Christian. And quoting 1 Thessalonians 5, Cooper reminds us that we must rejoice evermore. We must pray without ceasing, and we must in everything give thanks. Three universal duties for the Christian that we must be doing at all times. And our text today, quite simply, is about giving thanks. And it's about a certain kind of giving thanks. It's about giving thanks to God in high days of the Spirit, when our sails are full and when the horizon is clear, when the sun is shining upon us. There are other texts in the Bible that refer to the other kind of duty, that is giving thanks in the midst of sorrow, giving thanks to God in the midst of trouble. But this isn't one of them. This is a story that recounts the exhilarating experience of ten very sick souls who pass from death to life, who pass from hopelessness to happiness, who pass from poverty to riches, and they are in a state of great bliss. This is a story where the cup is overflowing. This is a story where the harvest is full. And as such, it's a clear lesson and a warning to us about our propensity to forget God and our successes. The Bible is quite clear to us that our capacity to forget God is a very serious problem. Deuteronomy 32, 18, you were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. Isaiah 17, 10, you have forgotten the God of your salvation, and you have not remembered the rock of your refuge. Jeremiah 2.32, can a virgin forget her ornaments? Can a bride forget her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. 
And then those haunting words to the church at Ephesus, you've left your first love. You've forgotten what was so important to you. Remember the place from which you have fallen. In fact, this inclination of God's people to forget God is his constant complaint against them. The whole history of Israel under the rule of the judges is a history of God's people forgetting their God. Peace in the land brought them forgetfulness. Blessings in the land gave birth to iniquity. And the land had rest for 40 years, we read. And the people of Israel, after that rest, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Samson, in the full flowering of his strength, he revels in his success and he goes astray, forgetting the God to whom he made his Nazarite vow. Hezekiah, exalted in the eyes of the nation and giddy with all the things that he has, grew proud. And Moses saw this all coming, and Moses prophesied to Israel in Deuteronomy 6, when you eat in your full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. Spurgeon says the Christian disgraces God far more in his prosperity than he does in his adversity. And so our text today reminds us of the difficulty of prosperity. Ten lepers come to Jesus in faith, Luke tells us. We're assured today of all of their faith because of their common prayer. Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Evidently, each and every one solicited Jesus, believing that Jesus had the power and the authority to rescue them from their disease. And when our Lord responds to them, He responds as a certain kind of challenge to their faith. He doesn't heal them on the spot. But he asks them to go. He asks them to be inspected uh, by the priests for a clean bill of health. Go, he says, and by the time you get there, you will be healed. Most of us have trouble with that. Most of us want proof now, now that he will be with us, now that he will put uh, his hand to bless us before we step out to the water. Give me a sign, please, we say. Gideon, it wasn't enough. For the fleece to be wet and the ground to be dry? No, he needed just one more test before he could trust God's Word. But notice here that not one of the lepers shrinks from the challenge of faith. No one here of these ten lepers, not one, refuses to believe that Jesus will do what he has said. No one gripes like Naaman in anger that the healing isn't coming in the expected fashion. Instead, Luke tells us that they all simply respond, in Calvin's words, with promptness and sincerity to our Lord's commands. They act promptly in faith, and all ten of them are healed, we read. But you see, that kind of faith, the faith that brings blessing, the faith that brings prosperity, as it turns out, isn't really the faith that matters. (laughs) In those haunting words of Jesus recorded in Matthew's gospel shed light on on this passage. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? 
Did we not cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. For all that faith, I never knew you. Depart from me. Faith to cast out demons. Faith to do mighty miracles. Faith to prophesy. Brothers and sisters, faith to be healed. Faith to obtain blessing and prosperity. And yet so very far from Jesus Christ. I grew up in a church that prided itself in altar calls and raised hands at the end of the service. Ten raised hands in the the church where I grew up meant infallibly that ten people were added to the kingdom of heaven. And I was never comfortable with that kind of arithmetic. Because while it's true that everyone who genuinely calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, not all who cry out, Master, have mercy upon us, not all who have some definite religious experience will possess a true and a lively faith. We know from our Lord's own teaching that as the seed of the gospel goes out, a lot of people will receive that seed with great joy. And they'll have a significant response to it. They'll start to grow. But then, ultimately, it perishes. It's choked out by the good things of this life. Wealth and the deceitfulness of riches choke out the Word. You know, the gospel writers and the gospel in general and the Word of God does not have overly optimistic views of human potential. Four kinds of soils, brothers and sisters... Four of them. Only one produces good fruit. Half of the virgins from Matthew's gospel demonstrate themselves to be remarkably indifferent towards the whole purpose of their journey. They're not prepared. They don't seem to care at all. And now in Luke's passage, ten lepers are healed. Ninety percent of them forget the God who gave them the gift. <laughs> now, here in Luke chapter 17, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and his mind right now is not only charged with his messianic destiny, but he's also wrestling deeply with the ultimate rejection that he will face by his own people. He came unto his own, writes John, and his own did not receive him. We read later on in the passage here, for as the lightning flashes from the sky from one side to the other, so will be the Son of Man in his day. But first, Jesus says, he must suffer many things and he must be rejected by this generation. And I don't doubt that as Jesus moves closer to being rejected by his own people, the failure of the nine is especially troubling to his soul. And I wonder if at this point, as Jesus says, were there not ten healed? Where are the other nine? I wonder if at this point, Jesus didn't reflect on the words that he gave to his own prophet Hosea, my people are bent on turning away from me. That's the warp and the woof of their hearts. It's not really surprising, is it, at all, with such a dismal showing in these Jewish lepers that in chapter 18, Jesus asked this haunting question, when the Son of Man returns, will he even find faith on earth? 
90% forget God. They're taken up with a gift. They've forgotten the giver. And see, the problem is that the gift pales in comparison to what the giver can give us. It pales in comparison to what it points us to. Whatever good we can receive from the creaturely gift in this life is only a faint echo of the good that's to be enjoyed in God. All goods, all gifts, all things, they only point to the reality that is in Him because He has made us for Himself. And the Lord gives us gifts that point us to himself, meant to remind us of him and the pleasure that can only be had at his right hand. We are made for communion with God. And that communion is a joy and a pleasure that is unexampled. It is unrivaled. It is unsurpassed. And let me remind you again of those oft-repeated phrases from C.S. Lewis. They, they deserve to be repeated again. Our Lord, he writes, finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday by the sea. 90% of these lepers content themselves with a mere rivulet when they could have had the whole gift of the eternal fountain itself. But one leper returns. One, it seems, through the gift, is seized with living faith, and he recognizes that the gift pales in comparison to the glory of the giver. True faith in this man leads him back to Jesus. You see, for this man, the Samaritan, the gift is just a sign. And to rest content with the sign is the worst kind of mistake. I know I've said this before, but it's like sitting in a restaurant and you're looking at the menu, and when the server comes to take your order, you say, the, the, the porterhouse with the red wine and peppercorn sauce looks tantalizing. It looks amazing. I'm fixed on that. But when they come to give you the dish, you say, oh, no, 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 you mistake me. I don't want the thing itself. I'm quite content with the list on the menu. Just let me be satisfied with the thing that points to the dish. You see, the Samaritan doesn't just want the sign. He wants what the sign points to. He wants the ultimate good, and he alone returns and falls on his face at Jesus' feet. And so he alone, Jesus said, is made ultimately well. The rest seem to lack that blessing. Brothers and sisters, some of us are living too much for the gift. Some of us are living too much for the sign, and we've forgotten the giver, and we've forgotten what the sign is pointing us to. Some of us are living in the menu, and we're missing from day to day the main course. One thing I've asked of the Lord, 
One thing that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, O Lord, your face will I seek. And Jesus Christ, he places the Samaritan before us today and he calls us back to a true and a living faith, not to wander the world with the nine, not to wander the world with those nine who are taken up with their gifts and will eventually become mere shadows, but to be like this one who returns every morning and every evening to Jesus Christ and falls on his face and confesses with Paul gladly from you and through you and to you are all things. All things are about you and confesses with the psalmist every day, every morning, who do I have in heaven but you? And there is none, there is not one on the earth that I desire before you. That is a true and a living faith. Not one that merely receives from God, but receives from God in order to go back to God. A faith that turns every happiness and every triumph, every good gift into an opportunity to return to Jesus. And may the Lord in his mercy, brothers and sisters, convict our hearts of living for the signs, of living for the menu. And may the Lord in his mercy work in us in a new way this true and this living faith that says to the Lord, one thing I've desired, and it's you. And who sings with John Wesley, is there a thing beneath the sun that strives with you, my heart, to share? Ah, tear it away and reign alone, the Lord of every motion there. Then shall my heart from earth be free when it hath found repose in thee. And so now to him who is able to strengthen you according to the gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. To the only wise God be glory forevermore. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.